Well, go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew 26. We're going to be starting in verse 36 this morning. But we are right back in uh, Matthew's gospel this week. We're steadily marching towards the crucifixion of Jesus. Last Sunday, we looked at uh, two narratives, the narrative of Jesus telling the disciples that they would betray him and Peter's absolute denial that that could ever possibly happen. And then we went to the end of Matthew 26, where just a few hours later, Peter did exactly as Jesus prophesied that he would, denying the name of Jesus three times. And today and next week, what I want to do is I want to take a look at the narratives in between those two narratives today, starting with the Garden of Gethsemane narrative. And at the end of this service, as at the end of all of the services uh, today, we are going to have baptisms uh, today, and uh, many, many baptisms today. And the Garden of Gethsemane narrative, though, is famous as it should be. It's a record of the time that Jesus spent in prayer directly before his, uh, his arrest and subsequent crucifixion. The details of the narrative present both though the humanity as well as the deity of Jesus and what I look at as kind of tremendous detail. In it, we actually see the Son of God struggling against the reality of the fact that He was going to be taking the sin of the world onto Himself so that He could redeem people from sin, bringing ultimate glory to the Father. But in this record, Matthew presents Jesus both kind of as our substitute as well as an example for us. And in that, we see the source of Jesus' strength as he prepares to take on what would be for anyone else an impossible task. But then we also see that we can find the strength for the mission that God has given us on this earth through faith in Jesus Christ. It's in this life that we're going to face seemingly unbeatable temptation, seemingly unbearable resistance to what God has called us towards. But when you live a life completely submitted to the will of God over your very own will, you will always find the strength that you need for what is ahead of you in this life. And so I want to begin reading in verse 36 of Matthew 26. In it we read, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that was James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Number one this morning, I want you to understand that spiritual strength requires spiritual preparation. Spiritual strength requires spiritual preparation. The first thing that we see in this text really is Jesus sympathizing with our weakness. The scene that Matthew draws here in the Garden of Gethsemane is unique in the narrative of the gospel. It's really unique in any picture that we have of the life of Jesus Christ. And it is shocking in that uh, it's this perspective into the humanity of Jesus. We are, through the gospel accounts, not accustomed to seeing Jesus kind of endure spiritual and even emotional distress. 
Now, when we look at Jesus on the cross, we see him enduring physical agony. That is one thing, but this is a completely different type of anguish that Jesus endures in this passage. What we're looking at in this passage is Jesus enduring an anguish that's unparalleled in his life, but it's important for us to look at to understand just what it was that Jesus was doing, not just in his death, but in the fact that he lived this substitutionary life for us. It also shows us the seriousness of the sin that Jesus was preparing to pay the penalty of on the cross. You know, when he enters into the garden, he leaves eight of his disciples at the gate, almost as lookouts until the time that was appointed for Judas' betrayal. But then he takes his inner circle. He takes Peter. He takes James. He takes John into the garden. And in doing this, these three disciples that kind of, if you look at the gospel narratives, you see that they were kind of Jesus' inner circle. They were the relationships that Jesus focused the most on inside of the disciples. They were the ones that had seen him transfigured on the mountaintop. And Jesus does this showing us that the hardest moment of his life, the one in which he is preparing to face not just the cross, but the one in which Jesus is preparing to face the weight of sin, to face the wrath of God for sin, paying the penalty. Jesus did not seek solitude. Rather, Jesus surrounded himself with his friends. Let that be a realization for your life. Some of you, you believe this lie that Just me and Jesus, that's all I need. When Jesus himself didn't even say that. Jesus didn't act like that. Jesus didn't enter the hardest moment of his life and say, just me. No, Jesus brought a network with him. Jesus brought his community with him. Jesus brought his friends with him. You know, no one needs a friend until the day they need a friend. No one needs a network of relationships until the day that you need a network of relationships. I don't care how strong you are. I don't care how tough you are. I don't care how good at white-knuckling through your life you are. You need people in your life. And you say, well, no, I've been doing pretty good so far. Right, so far. But the foolishness of humanity and the foolishness that we get deceived in and is our sin is that on the day that we need people and we haven't been investing in anyone, we haven't built relationships, we've been living a life almost in isolation, a life of solitude, and then no one is there for us. Do you know what we do? We blame all those people that we haven't been investing in. We blame all those people that we've been treating like we don't need them in our lives. We say, well, where were they when... I needed them. Well, they're exactly where they were when you didn't need them, helping someone else. They were there for people that had invested in them. They were there for people that had been building credibility and investing in their very lives. That is exactly where they were. And you know, it's not something that I don't deal with. I'm not like, uh, there are some people that they get around other people and they're like, oh my goodness, I just got the feelies. Just love being around people, all right? I'm not like that. I like people, but I'm pretty stoic about it. When I leave community group every week, I I don't typically look at my wife and be like, I'm so refreshed. (laughs) No, I typically find something to complain about. I'll be honest with you. That's just, you know, that's me, all right? I'll talk about the temperature in the room. 
I'll be like, whew, man, what was their thermostat set on, a thousand? Right? And I'll tell you where that came from. I'll tell you, when I, was, when I was a young man, my grandmother and grandfather, they were old school. The primary heat source for their house was this cast iron wood stove. All right? And I don't know if you know anything about wood stoves, but they're hottest when you're right beside them. And they never left their den. I don't even think they had a bedroom. It just We always sat in their den, and my sister and I would sit on the couch. My parents would sit in other chairs, and there my grandmother and grandfather were. And a million and a half degree wood stove in July. All right? And I think they forced more wood than should have been in there. And if you had opened it, I never saw them open it. I never saw them put anything in it. But I'm convinced to this day, now they've passed on, but I'm convinced to this day that if you had opened that wood stove, the portal to Satan's bedroom was inside of that wood stove. Now, I have a red complexion, but I'm telling you, I promise, when we would leave, my grandmother and grandfather says, I was maroon. All right? I was so hot. I was begging for sustenance. You know, uh, soap operas were always on, and I was trying to distract myself by watching whatever was going on on Days of Our Lives or whatever, you know, show it was. And then I was just looking at the Lord, and I was, I've never prayed like I prayed in my grandparents' house. I prayed, oh God, crack a window. Oh Lord, may some type of oxygen source present itself. There's no air in this room. So I've got some trauma. And so know that when I enter your home, all I'm thinking about is, what is that thermostat set on? And please, Lord, don't let them have a wood stove. I know they're coming back. Leave them. Leave them behind. But I will tell you, there have been moments in my life where I needed people. You know why they were there? Because I've invested in people. I invest in people when I don't need people so that when I need people, they're there. The story of your life and how you face struggles oftentimes is going to be defined by the people that were there to strengthen you when you didn't think you had any more strength, to encourage you when you were completely discouraged. Do not believe the lie that you don't need people. If Jesus Christ on his darkest day, said, guys, I need you. I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray with me. The Son of God, if that is the life that he lived, don't think you're going to be any different. It will be to your detriment. Invest in people. Because in this moment, the narrative of the work of Jesus' life begins to shift. So far, we've really been looking at Jesus and his authority. Jesus and his victory. Jesus performing miracles and challenging the authority of Israel. But here we begin to see a shift to more of an Isaiah 53 Jesus, more of the suffering servant of Israel picture of Jesus Christ. The weight of his mission to atone for sin is fully seen as he notes that the anticipation of the cross is making him. And here's what he says in the text. He says, I am sorrowful even to death. There's an anguish, a turmoil inside of him that he was unfamiliar with. And he says, it is making me feel as though I am dying on the inside. Hebrews 4.15 reveals to us that Jesus Christ, as our high priest, that he sympathizes 
with our weakness. Look at the text. The author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And I think this text is the greatest evidence of that temptation. He was tempted as we are yet, the difference, without sin. Jesus never gave in. Jesus never disobeyed. Friends, I want you to understand that just because Jesus hasn't been tempted with your specific sin doesn't mean he does not know or understand your temptation to sin. Jesus, who did not sin, Jesus, who was completely righteous, Jesus, who is sitting in anticipation of taking on the full force of the sin of the world in order that he could face the very wrath of the Father from all eternity as our substitute. That Jesus, who spoke the world into existence, is facing sin, not of his own, because he knew no sin. And the idea of facing sin gave him a temptation to tap out. This is the humanity of Jesus on full display. In his humanity, this is a real moment of struggle in the life of Jesus, but Jesus knew exactly what to do to prepare. Friends, if you want the right strength, you need the right preparation. Some of you are not preparing to face temptation in your life. You're just hoping that you will be able to get out of it. You won't. If that's the way you're going to live your life, expect to be unprepared for everything that you're going to face. Some of you are not preparing to face difficulty in your life. Friend, you will face difficulty. Your lack of preparation is not going to prevent difficult circumstances. They are coming. If Jesus needed preparation for what was ahead, why do you believe the lie that you are different If you're going to follow Jesus down the path that he has tread, you're going to need the preparation that Jesus needed in his life. When you consider the perfection of Jesus Christ, when we face that type of temptation or struggle, we often look for some type of opioid. We look for a distraction. We look to some type of vice for comfort. Not Jesus Christ, though. Jesus knew and he knows the source of real strength in order to prepare. But here's the deal. This isn't where the preparation had started. This was what Jesus had lived his entire life pursuing. Look at just one example in Luke chapter 6 verse 12. Here was the normal habit of Jesus. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. Jesus knew that the source of spiritual preparation that he needed in the greatest moments of his weaknesses was going to be found in prayer. The very first thing that you are tempted to jettison out of your life because of lack of time is the very thing that Jesus spent the most time in his life pursuing. Jesus said, I can't jettison prayer, I'll jettison sleep. Jesus sought spiritual Rest before he sought physical rest. Jesus spent an astounding amount of time in prayer in his life. 
When I was younger, I made actually an Excel worksheet for a project that I was working on about the prayer habits of Jesus, and it shocked me. Jesus spent an exorbitant amount of time in prayer. There are examples Jesus prayed in the morning. Jesus prayed in the afternoon. Jesus prayed in the evening. Jesus prayed late at night. Jesus prayed with people. Jesus prayed on his own. Jesus asked people to pray for him. When Jesus was going to speak, he prayed before he spoke. Sometimes there's an example in the gospel accounts where Jesus stopped during a sermon to spend time in prayer before he finished the sermon. Jesus was committed to a life of prayer. Are you? If you're a follower of Jesus, what is your prayer life like? These moments before Jesus on the cross are no different for Jesus. He knew exactly where to go in the moment of his deepest anguish. And you can only enter into that presence through faith in him. Jesus falls down on his face to spend time with the Father in order to find the strength that he knew he would need for the hours and days ahead of him. Again, this is where Jesus reveals his superiority over us in every way. This is why he is the sufficient sacrifice. This is why He is the righteous one. He is the perfect one. He is the one who could substitute His life on the cross for my life because He does not sin. Instead, He looks and goes to the Father for the strength to endure when He faces temptation that is solely sourced in human weakness. But do not also miss that not only is He substituted in this passage, He's your example. I ask you very simple questions. This is not complicated. How are you dealing with the hard aspects of your life? I tell people so many times, do not avoid reality. But that is what most people do when difficulty comes. You find something else to focus on. You find something to be an opiate in your life. You find something to distract yourself from difficulty. Engage reality engage difficulty when it comes up engage your weakness because it is there that the presence of God is going to supply for you the strength that is ahead never ever ever disengage from reality engage your reality in the presence of God are you going to God in large amounts of time in prayer Are you asking other people to pray for you and with you? Are you looking for something to distract you or are you looking for God to work through you? Are you looking for a momentary distraction or instant gratification while eternal strength in God is available for you? Friends, that is what is going to determine your preparation for what is ahead. Look back in verse 39, it says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That doesn't look like my prayer life. My prayer life stops after, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Because that's what I'm interested in. I just want to get out of it. Not Jesus, though, because he is obsessed with obedience 
He says, Father, don't take it from me if that's where I must go. If that's your will, that is what I want. That is my greatest desire. That is the joy of my life. Your will, your will alone is where I want to be. And if I have to walk down the dark road, if I have to walk down the path of the suffering servant to be right in your will, that's where I want to go, Father. Take me down it. And he came to the disciples, uh uh-oh, and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? If you want to know why that's a funny question, go listen to the sermon last week. This strong man who will never deny Jesus Christ fell asleep. Verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Some of y'all need to realize that about your own lives. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. It's fascinating when you look at the juxtaposition between Jesus and the disciples. Number two this morning, understand that the greatest sorrow Jesus faced was taking on sin. The greatest sorrow that Jesus faced in that moment was the realization that He was going to face and take on sin. There was a sorrow in Jesus because He was going to take on the sin of the world. And when you look at how Scripture deals with the holiness of God, compared to how Scripture deals with the horror of sin, it is sobering what Jesus was about to do on that cross. Because God is absolutely righteous, absolutely holy. Sin cannot even be in His presence. Everywhere we see the presence of God, we see sin being purged from His presence to show the absolute nature of His holiness. And Jesus now is looking at the sin that is condemned. The sin that is deadly. The sin that God paints us a picture of such horror that sacrifice is needed. Bloody sacrifice, nauseating sacrifice is required because of the horror of sin and the eternal damnation that God has said it deserves. This is not often how we view sin, friends, and it is quite often and usually not how we deal with personal sin in our lives. We tend to deal with sin in a way that cheapens the grace of God in light of the gospel. I mean, how many of you often we have the attitude that since the grace of God covers sin, since I can seek forgiveness, my sin's not that big of a deal. Friends, even if you don't say that verbally, the way that you bring temptation into your life, the way that you think about your disobedience to God, Jerry Bridges said years ago in the pursuit of holiness, we don't even like to call it disobedience. We call it personal failure. Mistake. Notice disobedience to a righteous and a holy God. This is the lie of progressive Christianity as it cheapens the grace of God in light of synergizing with the progressive culture around us in its sin. The posture of Scripture reveals the deadliness as well as the deceptive nature of sin. When Jesus notes that his sorrow is at the level of death, he is noting just how serious and severe the mission in front of him on the cross is going to be. 
But friends, it is also instructive of just the burden that Jesus took off of you and I through our faith in Him. When Jesus took the burden off of my shoulders, it was literally the burden of eternal damnation. And Jesus went to the Father to seek an alternative way because the darkness ahead was filled with a wrath totally foreign to Him. Because it was an undeserved wrath that I deserve, that you deserve. Yet look at how Jesus' prayer changes the second time. He looks to the disciples, watch and pray, and then it says, for the second time he went, verse 42, and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. I love that. He doesn't say an alternative that time. He says, if it can't pass, I will drink it. I will drink the bitter cup, is what Jesus says, how he looks at the path that is ahead of him. But Jesus treated our natural ability as very weak. When he returns in verse 40, they've fallen asleep. Now, we aren't given a purview into the mindset of the disciples in this passage, whether they were physically exhausted. I mean, the run that they had been on with Jesus, they probably were physically exhausted at that point. Maybe, or probably it was because of the mental struggle to even just deal with what Jesus had been saying to them, of what suffering he must face, the confusion about it, the inability to understand what Jesus was talking about in his life, or even if it was something else. Their response was to fall asleep when Jesus had asked them point blank, pray with me. This is their weakness in light of Jesus' strength. But it is also your weakness. You are no different. You mark off 15 minutes at the end of every day to pray. And then you hear the alarm clock the next morning. You mark off 15 minutes to pray at the beginning of the day. And then the overwhelming smell of bacon overtakes your prayer. And then you hear the alarm go off for the second time. And you got to get about your day. You see, human weakness is revealed in our inability to spend time in the presence of God without either our thoughts going somewhere else or the exhaustion from everyday life overwhelming us. Jesus warns the disciples. He says, you have a weakness in your flesh. And that is why they needed spiritual strength for what was ahead. Because the flesh is weak. I will tell you, friends, so often we mistake spiritual weakness for physical weakness. We convince ourselves, I just need a day off. I just need to physically detach and rest. The reality is that you may need spiritual rest rather than physical rest. The reality is is that you need spiritual rest that only spending extended time in the presence of God will give you strength for. I will tell you, I meet people, and you rest, and you rest, and you cannot find energy. And yet you think the answer is, just like the book of Proverbs says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will overwhelm you. Because the answer to the greatest struggles in your life is not a little more sleep. It's not a day off. The rest that you need is not going to come just in physical form. The rest that most of you need is going to come from the presence of God. It's going to spend time seeking the presence of the Father. 
If you rest and rest and cannot find energy, it may be that you are neglecting the real work that your soul needs. But then we look at the way that Jesus is treating sin. He lo- treats sin as something that's absolutely deadly. Another version of this narrative is found in Luke 22. In verse 44, it shows the agony of Jesus' spiritual work. Jesus praying in the garden. It says in being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly. In other words, Jesus began to be more physical in the way that he was praying. And it says, and his sweat. I mean, some of you, you can't even imagine praying so hard you perspire. But Jesus says his sweat became so severe that it became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus in this moment is so engaged in prayer. He was so physically involved in his prayer. He was so anguished over sin that he began to sweat rather great drops of blood. This is a historically rare and uncommon circumstance. It's a condition known as hematidrosis. It says that it comes from an extreme anguish and strain where it causes one's capillary blood vessels to dilate and burst, mixing sweat and blood. Some of us have this picture of Jesus always in a pure white garment. It's that hippie Jesus just kind of floating through circumstances. So the ancient heresy of Gnosticism where we, we kind of struggle to think of God the Son as being in reality, physical reality. And so we treat Him as just kind of this floating spirit who's above uh, reality and physical circumstances, just kind of floating, unaffected by what is going on around Him, giving us these pithy, inspirational quotes to help us through our day. No, that's not the picture that the Garden of Gethsemane narrative paints us of Jesus paints this picture for us of Jesus face down in the dirt. Tears and sweat pouring out of Him, forming puddles below Him where surely His tunic, surely the robe He's wearing is now dirty all over. Now perspiration is coming through the garment. Surely He's beginning to form rings of sweat. But then it goes even further and it says something uncommon is beginning to happen to Him in His prayer. That sweat is becoming blood through His pores. And now His tunic is not just stained with sweat. Now it is stained with blood. And then imagine in that instance, he comes to the disciples completely saturated. And he says, couldn't you just pray with me for one hour? Can't you just be there for me right now? Then he goes back into the presence of the Father. And he says, if I have to drink of it, I will drink of it. Because he's looking at human weakness in Peter, James, and John. And I believe that in his humanity, he says, they can't do it. And Jesus says, I'll do it for them. I will be the sacrifice. Sin is so foreign to the life of Jesus that even the thought of unholiness causes an anguish uncommon in history. I can't even imagine such a thing. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it records the reality of what was ahead on the cross for Jesus. Paul writes and he says, For our sake... 
God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't believe it was the physical pain that Jesus was in agony over. It was the pain of sin. I mean, Paul puts it that way. He says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. On the cross, Jesus is so saturated by the sin of humanity that he became, according to this text, the personification of sin itself. Though he had never committed a single one of them. He took that on. He became that for me and for you because I deserve to face the wrath of God for eternity. But Jesus, God is so loving. He says, I will take it on to myself for you. Through all of the turmoil and anguish, he did that for Peter, James, and John. He did that for me. He did that for you. And Matthew 26, 42, maybe one of the most important statements Jesus ever makes of obedience. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. That is how committed to righteousness Jesus Christ is for you and for me. Even in the face of enduring sin itself and the wrath of God. Jesus says, I will drink it because Jesus loved the will of the Father to that degree. He wouldn't disobey no matter what the cost. Thirdly, this morning, power over temptation is found in God's presence. Power over temptation is found in God's presence. The determining factor for Jesus was not pain. Usually is for you and me, isn't it? Oh, I can avoid pain? Sign me up. (laughs) I can avoid hardship? Sounds good. I can avoid even a moment of hardship in my life? I'll do it. Not Jesus. Jesus said, the will of God is the determining factor for my life. And I think the end of this section is interesting in that Jesus shows that He is determined to do in the face of human failure what God has called Him to do for them. Look at what it says in verse 44. So, leaving them again, He went away and He prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And just a little tidbit for you, I think some of the problem that you have with prayer is some of you are trying to kind of make God think that you're smarter than you are. Trying to impress Him. You say Heavenly Father like 30 times or something. All right, oh, holiest, most heavenliest, most fatherliest of fathers in the presence of the Lordest of Lords. And you try to religiousize your prayers. Follow what Jesus says. See, Jesus in this passage is in pain. Jesus is in anguish. He can't find the words in His humanity, and so He just prays the same thing over again. God is not impressed by your eloquence. God is impressed by you seeking His presence. Just bring the words that you have, and the Spirit will use them. Verse 45, Then He came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus finishes praying while the disciples sleep and softly rebukes their inability one more time before 
setting his attention to what is ahead. In John chapter 12, we see another interesting statement of Jesus, and I love the way that Jesus says this. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And then in verse 27, he says something interesting, something that can be confusing. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus is speaking of what it looks like to follow him down the path that he is on. He states first that it requires losing your life to gain his, and then he uses the term hate in comparison to the love of God's will in eternity. Jesus then, I believe, considering the cross ahead of him, asks the rhetorical question of should I ask the Father to save me from what is ahead of me? He says, if you can't follow me down this path, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to look to the Father? Should I ask Him to save me from this hour? Should I look to the Father and say, I want an easier path than the one that I am going down? I won't go to the cross. You're asking too much. That's too hard for me. But Jesus looks and note what He says. He says, this is the purpose for which I have come. If I avoid the call of God, if I avoid the will of God, if I avoid that path which will bring God the most glory in my life, I'm avoiding my very purpose and that would be sin. But Jesus won't do it. While humanity in our sin exchanges eternity for sin, Jesus was not satisfied with this world. Jesus wanted more. His joy was and is the will of God. Is it yours? Because following Jesus Christ will require the surrender of your will to God's will. That is what faith looks like. That is what trust in Jesus looks like. Because when you consider all that Jesus endured in paying the penalty for salvation, it is astounding Everything Jesus had to endure, betrayal, pain, wrath of God, etc., was to pay the penalty that I deserve to pay so that I could have eternal life that I do not deserve to have. It's an amazing salvation. Jesus was able to do that which I am incapable of doing on my own. He did it to bring glory and worship to God because that is where it belongs. That is where it is deserved. That is how God is most glorified in life, where we seek His will above our very own. Not only is Jesus absolutely perfect in righteousness, but He also, at the greatest of sacrifices, is able to give us His righteousness so that we can be redeemed by Him. But as Jesus substituted Himself in that garden, surrendering His will, friend, if you want to follow Jesus, you must surrender your will to His will. There's no other path. You must give all of yourself to Him to receive all of Him in return. 
That is what it means to have faith. That is what it means to trust him. That is the path of following Jesus. Friends, the temptations that we will face in this life are insurmountable apart from him. Friend, do you look at the temptation in your life and you say, it's too great. I can't overcome this righteousness. True. You can't. But the good news of Jesus Christ is He will give you His life. And He promises that when you seek the presence of God through Him, He will give you the strength you need for what is ahead. Friends, so many of you, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, yet you are surprised when you are obedient. Friend, you should be surprised when you sin. It should shock you. I can't believe I disobeyed. You shouldn't be surprised by obedience. When you give your will to Jesus, you should build a life of spiritual preparation like Jesus did, where when you do see sin in your life, and you will, it shocks you because there's no room for sin in the life of someone pursuing the holiness of God. Just as Jesus surrendered in the presence of God, so must you. A few application points this morning. First, trust Jesus as your substitute in everything. You are not strong enough for the temptation in your life. You're not. Only God is. Therefore, when Jesus says, I give you my life, take it. Only He is enough. Secondly, prepare for trials like Jesus did. Don't prepare for trials based on your personality type or based on your love language or based on anything that has to do with you. If you're a follower of Jesus, follow Jesus. Thirdly, treat sin as seriously as Jesus did. Stop entering into environments of temptation and expecting obedience. Flee temptation. Run the other way. Seek strength in the presence of God. When temptation comes into your life, flee to the presence of God immediately because that is where you find strength. Fourthly, seek the presence of God regularly. Every day. Multiple times a day. Spend time in the presence of God. And then fifthly, surrender to the will of God above your very own. If you want to follow Jesus, your life will be defined by His will, not your will. 